I've got some credentials that identifies who I am in real life. I've got my passport. I now have a new cool driver's license called a real ID and it meets some newer federal guidelines that minimizes some fraud stuff. But in the digital realm, I got lots of user IDs, I've got passwords. They all enable me to access systems. And although this will never happen, I suppose I could share this password with a kid. Uh, but you see, the problem is digital identity isn't that easy. So today we'll be talking with Drummond Reed, who spent the past 20 years. He's been focused on internet identity, security, privacy, trust frameworks. Currently, he's the chief trust officer of Evernim, a company at the forefront of a rapidly growing global movement to decentralize digital identity. Evernim acquired Respect Network, where Drummond was the CEO, co-founder and co-author of the Respect Trust Framework. He's been active in industry foundations, including the Open Identity Exchange, and he's been recognized for his distinguished work. And it's our pleasure to have Drummond with us today. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to the Georgian Impact Podcast. So Drummond, I'd like to just get right to it. What do you see is broken today and what leads you to what you're talking about with this thing called SSI, self-sovereign identity? Oh, well, if you ask me what's broken on the internet, I need to go no further than about 20 feet to my wife's desk where since I'm, I'm sheltering in place, I've been for four and a half months now, I am the household IT guy. <laughs> and I'd say that's an average, even though she uses, uh, you know, um, uh, all Apple uh, devices and Apple password manager, which I think is about as good as it gets out there. I'd say it's an average of once a day. I'm helping her with some account logging in to some website someplace. It's still that hard. And she still has dozens and dozens of usernames and passwords and the sites get confused and she gets confused and it's all very weak and broken. And that's just passwords. Let's not get into any of the rest of how you really can't prove anything else about yourself online, except that you were the person that was there last time. If you can remember the username and password. I love that. I hadn't really thought about it. And this is not a, I'm not going to get in trouble with my wife at all either, but I think the sense of passwords still sitting on little yellow sticky notes and passwords of, I'm sure it wouldn't be your wife or anybody in your family using one, two, three, four, five, six as a password. <laughs> but yeah, we definitely have a, we definitely have that problem. But I like your point about all it knows is you were the last person to log on with that user ID and password. That's really interesting. Now, there's obviously much more to identify yourself, right? Exactly. Well, in the emergence of this uh, category, we now call SSI, self-sovereign identity, over the last three and a half, four years, I used to start out with more technical descriptions, but now it's, it's become so easy to explain it every single time. And I know we're just on a podcast, but if you saw me in person, I would pull out my wallet, I would hold it up, and I would say, Ladies and gentlemen, we all know how to do self-sovereign identity. We've been using it for as long as we've been, you know, holding a wallet in our hands, right? It is how we prove ourselves, our, our identity in the real world. Every day, every time we get on an airplane, we rent a car, we rent a hotel room. We do it with a set of credentials we carry in a wallet with us. And they're issued to us by the trusted authorities that know enough about us to issue us that credential. And we carry them to wherever we need to prove something about our identity. 
And we call that the verifier. And the verifier asks for just the credentials that they'll accept. And then they look at them like, you know, TSA, when you get on a plane, they'll pass the driver's license under blue light, right? They'll check the uh, hologram on the, on the passport, whatever. And if they say, yeah, I think this is a valid credential to make sure it's current, it's not it's expired, it looks like me, and I get through, right? But what's just patently clear as soon as you explain that is we have nothing like that online. There are no credentials that we have that we can go anyplace and use. And if we had that, life online would just be dramatically easier, more productive for all of us. Now, what about my face? I'm thinking Apple here, Face ID. Is that better? Is that a step in the right direction? It's absolutely a step in the right direction because when you're using Face ID or, you know, before that, I've had both generations of Apple devices, uh, even the fingerprint, the touch ID. Sure. What you're doing is you're verifying your biometric to your device. And the reason that's both powerful and safe, it's powerful because it's hard to uh, replicate, although fingerprint was easier than face. So that's why they've migrated. And secondly, it's safe because you're just doing that between yourself and the device. And that's the only place where that biometric is stored so it can do the comparison and verify you. What's hard is if you want to do that with websites over the internet or with applications that are not tied to your device, how are they supposed to know what your biometric is? Ah, uh, I see. Yes. And if, if you stored your biometric out there on the network someplace, that gets really dangerous because hey, if someone gets a hold of that biometric, suddenly they have literally a copy of you and they can go and impersonate you anywhere in a very strong way. So that's why biometrics are very useful as one piece of this sort of chain of trust of authentication you need to build. And with self-sovereign identity, where we do it is you have a digital wallet with those credentials in it, and you use the biometric to unlock your digital wallet. So it's a, it's a form of protection. Correct. And that digital wallet is not centralized. Like you say, having the face ID in a central place is a high risk. Yes. The last thing you want is with that one place where everything can get hacked. Exactly. The whole idea of self-sovereignty moving physical credentials online into digital credentials is you have the wallet, just like you carry your wallet close to yourself in your, in your pocket or your purse, you want to have your digital wallet close to yourself. So typically it'll be a, a, on a smartphone or a tablet or, or a laptop on your own devices. And that's where you do the biometric authentication to unlock the wallet. And then you want to register, log in on a website. Today, you have to create a new username and password. Right. And maybe you'll use a password manager or Apple's uh, keychain to help automate that process for you. But still, you have to do that at every site. And username and password in any combination is not very strong. That's why we have to add these multi-factor authentication processes, like when they send you a text message and say, well, is it your phone as well, right? Sure. And those, those help. It definitely makes things stronger, but it also adds more friction to the whole process. When, if you had a digital wallet with digital credentials in it, and this software we call the agent that essentially is the software that runs that wallet, then you could show up at a website and they could say, hey, you want to register? You could scan a QR code with your phone and say yes, and you're done. And what's happened there is that the agent on your phone and the agent on that website, these two little pieces of software, they quickly negotiate this cryptographic connection between the two. There's no username. There's no password. And the strength of that connection because of the underlying cryptography is like 100 times more powerful than any username or password you come up with. It's just super strong. 
this layer that you're talking about is separate from, I'll drop the F-bomb here, separate than, say, Facebook. Yes. I'm not logging on with Facebook credentials. I'm logging on with these, these independent credentials that would then go to Facebook or Amazon or anybody else, correct? Yes. The whole, whole thing you're referring to there is the whole generation we developed of what we call federated identity, where you as an individual, you didn't have these tools, but it was so painful to have to manage your own usernames and passwords that you said, oh, what if there's a site that I can log into and then that site can log me in every place else that I need? Mm-hmm. And the best known of those, of course, are log in with Facebook, log in with Google or LinkedIn or Twitter, right. the social login services. And they've, you know, honestly, they've been very helpful. They've been fairly widely accepted. The problem we've run into, uh, well, a couple problems. One is that they're not universal, right? There are many places you can't use those services. And one of the reasons is it's either privacy that you don't actually want someone else knowing every place you're logging in and all the times you're doing it. But in some cases, one of the reasons that banks or financial institutions don't take them is they're not strong enough. They're not secure enough, right? Right. By definition, you've got another party in the middle of your transactions. And then the larger thing that they've run into is the recognition of those different sites and relationships you have out there that they're putting someone else in the middle who's growing more and more powerful because it's leveraging relationships that belong directly to you and the other party. Yeah, it's interesting. The banks obviously have a lot of work to do, and it, there's no doubt the banks want to provide the most secure connection. I believe that the people don't recognize that when my friends and family log on via Facebook, I say, you do know that you're giving them that much more information about you, that they now know that. I, if I'm using any, you know, I'm not going to log on to Netflix through Amazon Prime, for example. Right. I want everything to be as siloed as best we can, but it's a challenge because you mentioned friction. It's harder. There's more friction when you have to do it all yourself. Exactly. And so, John, the way we're getting rid of that friction with SSI is we're giving you a digital wallet and a digital agent that goes with it to automate all of that for you, right? So it literally becomes as simple as wherever you go and you want to form a new relationship with a new website or a new person or an organization, any place. It's uh, And the various ceremonies, you can click a link or you can scan a QR code, but you literally just basically do that one action to wake up your agent and say, ah, I need a connection here, or I need to share some credentials they're asking for. And you're always going to have the same experience of saying yes or no to the information that they're asking to share. And once you've done it and the connection is established, you never need to do it again. I can't emphasize this enough that there's never been anything like this on the internet before. When when you and I, let's say we, we formed a connection, a good example is we meet at a conference, right? Today, you'll have some badge, you know, that might have a QR code on it or something that the conference has given you. And I might do that. And we can scan those things or we can get out our phones and we can connect through LinkedIn. But with SSI, either one of us could just pop up a wallet and a QR code and the other one could scan it or we could do it via Bluetooth. That's our, you know, or or NFC. When we form a connection, there is no one else in the middle. It is directly between the two of us. It's literally based on cryptographic keys, long numbers in our, in our digital wallets that are shared with each other. And that connection will exist for as long as we both want it, no matter how many times we move or change service providers or change email addresses or anything else. 
because those two wallets can always connect and verify that that's, yep, it's you, John, it's me, Drummond, and, uh, and we can use that connection for anything we want. Now, staying on the wallet metaphor, I check into a hotel, they want to see my passport, I write signature required on my credit card, and they ask to see my driver's license. Are these unique things in my wallet, or is it a one wallet with one thing in it called me, or however you want to categorize that? It's very much like the wall you have today. It's, it's your wallet, but it has as many credentials as you've been issued that you find useful. And in fact, what will happen with digital wallets is very much like our computers contain many more documents than our typical personal filing cabinets because it's so easy for a computer to manage them all. Same thing will be true. You'll end up with, as the technology matures, you'll end up with the same type of credentials you have in your wallet today, plus a whole bunch of other ones that are more, sometimes we call micro-credentials. Like you go and you take a, a course online, you, you, you listen to a uh, webinar for an hour, you can get a credential just like that sure, at the end. Sure. You know? Yes, I was there the whole time. And now you can prove, yep, I took that webinar or I took the quiz at the end. But when I go to you, my friend, at a conference and I share my wallet with you, I just want you to know my name and address or something. And I don't want you to know what courses I take. Exactly. Oh, if I go to the hotel, I want them just to see the passport, nothing else. So that's manageable. This is one of the most powerful things about SSI, the way it works, is that party that needs to know something called the verifier, they create this thing called a proof request, which is basically, hey, here's what we need to know. It's the digital agent equivalent of a web form, right? If you, go, if you went to their website today or, or, or you know, went to check in a hotel that put an iPad in front of you and it's got a bunch of questions for you, right? Well, a proof request is just those questions put into a form that your agent can understand. So all you have to do is scan a QR code, your agent will pop up and go, here's what they want to know. Do you want to tell them or not? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you just go, yes or no. If they ever ask for something that's not in your wallet, it's smart enough. The, the whole thing we're designing is for you to go, oh, oh, I, they're asking for a credential I don't have, but here's where I can go get it. And so there's just this process you go through steadily, just like with our real world wallets, you steadily accumulate the credentials you need. But the, the most important thing about it that's very different than conventional credentials. Like if I go to a, a bar and they want to know I'm old enough to drink, I have to show the bartender a driver's license yes. or, or a passport, right? And now they have your address and those others that you didn't want them to know. They just wanted your birthday. Exactly. Built into SSI, done right. I want to point out, it's not, it's not always done right, but we're trying to establish the, the best practices, is a capability called selective disclosure. And it basically says, it doesn't matter what's all on your credentials. The verifier just asks what the verifier needs to know, and that's all they get. Right. Beautiful. The classic example is if the bartender needs to know or the bouncer, you're over the legal drinking age in that town or country or wherever, right? Oh. Whatever that drinking age is, all they need to know is green light, yes, red light, no. And that's all they'll need to find out. And it can happen under a second. Now, to finding the marketplace it's not just B to C or B to B to C or C to C. This is this is C in the middle of everything, which I've never it drawn that is. picture before. <laughs> it is well. We talk about the Trust OIP Foundation when we began it in May. We made it very clear what we're building here is the trust layer for the internet. So just like the internet goes every place and it connect any two devices anywhere for any reason, those devices and the people or organizations or connected things that are on those devices that are communicating, 
if they need to establish trust, it needs to work the same way everywhere. So absolutely, C to C, B to C, all of IoT, it turns out that SSI, as much as we think it's about for people, the world of IoT of connected devices needs it even more badly. Of course, because Amazon shipping on Nest thermostats with admin and password as the user ID and password was not a good thing. Not a good thing. So my worry then, well, my worry, but something I want to ask you about is how to get to agree to set of standards. So I've spent time on standards boards. It's not fun because companies are trying to put their best interest in front and maybe beat another company that's sitting next to them at the table. How do you work in through all the challenges of getting a consistent set of standards in place? Boy, is that a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) But not inaccurate, sadly. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is all too accurate. One of my favorite people in the industry, Anil John at the Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S., who has been driving digital identity standards for a long time, wrote a great blog post on CyberForge about that, I think it was two weeks ago, and he talked about you have to have standards organizations, but boy, they're filled with politics and you just can't get away from it. So my recommendation, I, I actually had a call with Anil about what he posted there, The best you can do is you can establish a really strong vision and attraction for what problem the standard is solving and get everyone to align around that. And when anyone tries to veer from, well, okay, but we want to do it our company's way, you have to come back and get the community pressure to go, yeah, but that's not getting us all to where we've agreed we want to go. And I'm very happy to say that with the the standards, there are two key standards around SSI. And the first one was called Verifiable Credentials, or VCs for short. And I mean, there's, there's a whole movie I've told uh, the leader of that. It's going to be a Netflix series someday. The battle he had to fight to get that accepted even as a working group of the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium. And uh, he almost didn't make it. I mean, but it finally got approved. And then he had to fight all the way through together, others of us that joined it, to finally get it to be a full W3C standard, which happened last September. That's why this area is now exploding, because there is a W3C standard for the format of these digital credentials. The second one is called DIDs, Decentralized Identifiers. And that's one I started working on four years ago, and it's now, we're halfway through the full W3C working group. So about a year from now, or yeah, towards the end of next year, it'll be a full standard, but we'll pretty much be done this summer, and then it's just all approval processes. And on that one, there's been a lot less contention, John, because everyone understands that we need this new type of identifier So you are in control of your wallet and your credentials and not your ISP or your telco or Google or Facebook or some internet giant, right? You have the power and and that's why they call it self-sovereign identity. Perfect. So the key for this one for me is network effects. So obviously, is there a big win out there that you think can happen with a... I don't know, an Apple or someone else that would help or a, a large enterprise company or a bank that would um, begin to help you really get some momentum going? Or do you have that already? Um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, I think that is what is coming. And to the answer, do we have it already? I have to reply, no comment. As in, there are certain relationships that uh, Evernims in that definitely would represent very large populations of potential adopters. I'm certain the same is true for other companies focusing on the SSI space because you hit, John, exactly the right word, network effect. The analogy I've been using for a while now is the growth of the adoption of verifiable credentials and SSI will be very much like the growth of the web. 
right? You know, someone had to create the first website and the second and the third and then start creating links between them. And that's, that's exactly where we are now. I'll give you an example. We have worked for three years with CU Ledger. It's a consortium of the credit unions that came together to say how the credit unions are going to use blockchain technology to solve sort of industry-wide problems. And they decided to focus on the first one was self-sovereign identity that just helped squeeze out fraud and make it a lot simpler and safer for credit union members to use not just their own credit union, but any other credit union in sort of the worldwide network of credit unions. And they just reached the point about two months ago of starting to issue those credentials after all the work and the infrastructure we had to put in place. And now they've got a line of credit unions that want to start saying, oh, yeah, okay, now we see how it's working. We understand the members love it. Let's start scaling it. So I think we're going to see it sort of industry by industry. We actually have a specific term we use. It's the adoption of verifiable credentials is driven by ecosystems. Credit unions are one ecosystem in the financial services space. It won't be one bank. It'll be a group of banks in their ecosystem that say, hey, this is the best solution. Another place where there's, I think, huge traction is coming is healthcare. Great. Yep. It's, you know, it's just very, very costly to prove out information. And if there are mistakes made, whether it's in obviously your medical data or your payment data, right, then it just costs a lot of money and that waste can be squeezed out with the introduction of digital credentials. Well, that's great. Sounds like you're breaking through uh, companies that might consider typical dinosaurs, but it looks like you're getting them moving by getting them together. I'm not sure what a cohort of dinosaurs are called, if they're a gaggle or a pod. (laughs) So I think I'd like to just go back a little bit higher level and have you parse for me Evernim, the company you work for, and Sovereign Foundation. I think people find very interesting the differences and kind of how you spend your time. Sure, exactly. That has been an area of confusion because my company, Respect Network, was working on a piece of this. I started that in 2011, and uh, it was these agents and the protocol they would use to talk between your digital wallets now. But it wasn't blockchain-based, what I was working on. And then I and others in the digital identity space started to discover the power of blockchain to enable these decentralized digital credentials. And so did others in the industry. And Evernim came out of stealth in, I think it was 20. Yeah, 2015, towards the end, and was working on something very similar. They were working on the blockchain component. So once I discovered them within, I think it was two months, we decided to merge the companies and build it together. And they had this vision of, hey, for this to adopt, we need a a blockchain that's really designed expressly to support self-sovereign identity. But of course, it needs to be a blockchain, it needs to be distributed around the world, and that can't be owned or operated by any one company. Uh, so I had, I had quite a bit of experience. One of the reasons they bought Respect Network is I and the teams I've worked with have been working on internet standards for identity, like an organization consortium like Open Identity Exchange and Open ID Foundation, Information Card Foundation. So I said, hey, what we need to do is set up international nonprofit organization, not to run this network, it's actually run all the nodes of the blockchain are, are operated by what we call stewards around the world, right. but to provide governance for it, to be basically the community governance. So we recognized that we needed to start this international nonprofit foundation to govern this new network, blockchain ledger. And we got it kicked off in September 2016, and it has a set of individual trustees of the foundation from around the world. 
And that was the start of the Sovereign Foundation. And a little less than a year later, in July of 2017, we had the, the first 10 stewards had agreed to come together. We had the Hyperledger Indie code base. The code that Evernim had originally written for this blockchain was contributed to the Sovereign Foundation, who in turn contributed to Hyperledger because it was a larger community for open source. So the Hyperledger Indie code base and 10 stewards around the world, and we had a big ceremony of starting up the Sovereign blockchain, and it has run continuously since last day of July in 2017. So the Sovereign Foundation is a completely separate, independent nonprofit that now has gone through a whole second generation. I'm no longer on the board. I was one of the original trustees, but now there's a new board and it's in its second generation of growth as a governing organization for a blockchain network. And the only thing, John, that blockchain network does is it just holds the, uh, what we call the cryptographic roots of trust, the DIDs of all the different organizations issuing verifiable credentials. You don't put any credentials or private personal data on that blockchain at all. Right. One question for you, and, and I'm not sure if this shows that I don't quite get it yet. I get that I can identify myself, identify myself to my bank. My bank can't share it with another bank. It's point to point and it doesn't get distributed. I always have to authorize where it goes somewhere. But it makes me think about identity and what identity means. And I'm thinking about the challenges sometimes when things are anonymized. And I think about trolling and fake news and putting a digital signature on a post of some sort. Is this at all relevant to that space or am I asking a question that's kind of irrelevant? No, it's highly relevant. It's, it's very highly relevant. The reason for a number of those problems you've talked about is the fact that we don't have any strong ways of proving digital identity. It's the problem with account-based identity. If the only way you can prove something about yourself today is to prove you have an account someplace, then all of the public discourse and things that happen where you're not, you know, it's not tied specifically to one account. That's where we have so much uh, fakery and trickery, and, and it's just very difficult to have very confidence in that. When you have SSI infrastructure, when you have digital credentials, and you have the selective disclosure capability, what you can then do is you can, regardless of where it's happening, you can require the participants to prove something about themselves. So you can still be not technically anonymous, but pseudonymous huh. because, and, and it, what it is, I call it, it's pseudonymous accountability, right? If, if there's a news story out there and you're like, well, did it really come from a verifiable source, even though it might be a whistleblower, right? You need to know it's a real person who has certain real associations. You just don't know who they are. Fascinating. Well, they can prove that with verifiable credentials. And now there's a way that news stories and news filters can require that. There is a whole, um, that was actually brought to the Verifiable Credentials Task Force at W3C, how to use for fake news. And they produce a, a short report to deal with fake news. That's great. Is it similar, something I've been following over the years to the MIT Solid Project with Tim Berners-Lee? Is this different or similar? That's a great question, and there are a lot of similarities. It's a decentralized identity and, and personal data sharing solution. That's based on the W3C semantic web technology that Tim has led for a long time. It has this idea of a pod, which is a little like a wallet. A pod is more for all your personal data and you know personal information you might want to share and your personal digital archive, like uh, your portfolio, documents you've written, emails, all of that. A uh, superset for sure. A big superset. Right. Maybe. A big superset. But sort of like 
Apple's iCloud, only it's your cloud. Got it. Some people have called it the personal cloud. And part of that could be digital wallet and credentials that you can share. The SSI movement is more based on, hey, let's just start with strong proof of your ability to prove about your identity and your relationships and control. It's more the digital wallet information than all the rest of it. But there's a lot of intersection and synergy with those. And so we have talked at conferences with Tim and his team about using, and and, and he's a big fan of the open standards that we're developing at W3C. Awesome. So for someone that's interested, why would they pick up the phone and call Everdim? What would they be getting today? So Everdim is, uh, again, because we started there, we are fully focused on SSI. It's our entire, you know, focus. It's our obsession. So what we are doing, even though we've contributed massively to the open source, primarily in the Hyperledger, Indy, Ursa, and Aries projects, what we have built is a stack of software for issuing and verifying digital credentials and then software for the wallet to hold them. And that is an app called connect.me. It's a general purpose wallet you can get on the Apple App Store or uh, Google Play. What we're doing is working with uh, customers, in many cases, ecosystems, as I said, that's where adoption is starting. And initially, a lot of what they want to do is just learn about the technology, experiment, try POCs. And uh, we did a lot of that. We had a whole program for working with companies. We probably had more than 100 different companies go through that. But then as they've matured, what we built out is really a production platform for industrial grade issuance and acceptance of verifiable credentials. And we now have a mobile SDK because what we found is many companies and developers, they want to have their own app. They want to integrate credentials into their app or their own user experience. Makes total sense. And and so you can have a general purpose wallet or a sort of a specialized embedded wallet. So now we've produced a mobile SDK that's there's a huge amount of interest in. So our job is really to provide the underlying plumbing for it might be a, a retail a supply chain situation or in healthcare that they want to use credentials for one of the popular recent topics, of course, has been COVID-related credentials, whether it's test credentials or preparing for vaccination, all the things you'll need around going back to work. We provide the plumbing. We work with both the end customers, and now we're working with a number of large integrators because integrating all this into your backend systems and your processes, it's very much like the transformation you went through when you adapted your company to the web, right? You said, okay, we want to have this new new interface. Now it's like, okay, we've got a new, new solution for digital trust. That's great. So, Drummond Reed, thanks for taking the time. This was a fascinating discussion. This is a new space. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about this over time. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an area I'm very passionate about. You spent 20 years on it and you get to a solution that really has world-changing potential. You want it out there. So very happy to uh, talk to you about it. 